This is Bent Notes Queer Musicology Podcast. This is episode five. We are back from a very long hiatus. Thank you for bearing with us. This episode was recorded before lockdown happened. I think before I kick off and introduce this episode's guest, I just wanted to say solidarity with everyone whose employment is precarious right now. Anyone who's struggling, um, you know, reach out to your mutual aid groups and support them. And I also wanted to say a resounding Black Lives Matter. If anyone has any recommendations about guests that we should have on, anyone whose voices we should be amplifying, I want to hear them. At the same time, we're working hard as a study group to decolonize the events that we're putting on and the media that we're producing. And we're always open to criticism when we're getting it wrong. If you want to read our full statement on Black Lives Matter, please visit our website, which is lgbtqmusicstudygroup.com. That's lgbtqmusicstudygroup.com. And I'm really looking forward to sharing some of the great interviews we've done over the next few months. This episode, I spoke to Ryan Persady, also known as Tifa Wine. Ryan is a PhD student in Women and Gender Studies at the University of Toronto and holds an MA in Ethnomusicology and Sexual Diversity Studies from the University of Toronto, as well as a Bachelor in Music from University of Western Ontario. Ryan zoomed in to talk to me about his doctoral research, which investigates queer Indo-Caribbean diasporas and the ways in which performance within Anglophone Caribbean popular music articulates and disrupts different notions of sexual citizenship in Toronto and in New York City. A drag queen on the Toronto scene, Ryan also performs as Tifa Wine to Chutney and Soka Music. Keep listening at the end for more updates, and I hope you enjoy it. This is not a test. This is your emergency broadcast system announcing the commencement of carnival and all forms of popular. Anti-stitch behaviors of slappers, rudeness, whitelessness, jamishness, and other means of state disobedience have been authorized during this time. All forms of respectability, modesty, class, good behavior, brought up scene, properness, toxic masculinity, hegemonic writers, racism, Right. Thank you so much for writing to me and stuff. I'm really excited to talk to you. So I think, first of all, could you tell me about Tifa Wine? I really want to hear about all about her, where she came from, what led you to stop performing as her. Um, well, thanks for saying my name correctly. A lot of times people read it and they're like, what is that? <laughs> Tifa Wine? Um, no, but yeah, it started um, started for fun. Actually, I was doing my master's in ethnomusicology at U of Toronto. And I just started doing it for fun with my partner at the time, just because we, you know, we had watched things like RuPaul's Drag Race um, and that sort of thing, and just had always been kind of interested. I would always go to like drag bars and stuff and see the shows and was just kind of really interested in the art form for about a year. I did it just for fun. So I was just kind of like practicing makeup in my room, wasn't really performing or anything, but just would go to clubs and like people would be interested in what I was wearing and like what I was doing. And it became interesting because it'd be kind of my way of doing um, field work because I would go to my sites that what what, what would become my sites uh, for field work and people would be more interested in talking to like Tifa Wine than they would 
than like Tarion. Mm. <laughs> so not to say more interested, but obviously like when I'm out of drag, I I just look like a cis man, uh-huh. right? So, but yeah, Tifa Wine is like, I'm really into like very hyper exaggerated, kind of almost excessive forms of drag. So like really heavy makeup, really heavy like padding over the top kind of contours and colors and that sort of thing. So it's not something you would like see on the street. You know, it's yeah, I'm very interested in like very campy type of drag and very comedic types of drag. So it also came with this really interesting way for me to engage with like fieldwork and do queer ethnomusicology because people would just be interested to know who I was. And yeah, from there, um, I started doing more community work. So like I'm Indo-Caribbean. So I do a lot of work in like queer Caribbean communities here in Toronto. And so part of my activist work also became like being in drag and like hosting events and performing and doing all that sort of thing. Um, So about three years ago, I started performing mostly like in community spaces and fundraisers and activist spaces and feminist spaces. And from there, it just kind of took off and I started doing more different types of projects with photography and performance and kind of bridging my work in academia and activism. What's behind the name, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, so Tifa Wine uh, is actually just a play on um, Caribbean, Trinidadian Creole specifically. My dad's family is from Trinidad and Tobago. And in, in Trini uh-huh. Creole, the phrase to Tifa wine is like when, um, like spell, like you would spell it like T-E-E-F space A-H space wine. Wine is like a dance move um, that's very popular in like queer spaces. It's this very kind of sexy side to side hip movement that you do to genres like soca. But it's often also done with a partner um, and it's very uh-huh. kind of sexual. It's very erotic. And there's always um, kind of a dominant whiner and then there's like a more submissive whiner who's dancing in front. And what Tifa wine basically means, Tif in kind of Caribbean Creole means to like steal. So if you're like in a party space and you want to dance with somebody, you kind of go up to them and you start whining on them. That's called teefing a whine. But I, I just came up with this name like really randomly because I was like, oh, it just it just sounded funny. And people announce me at events like everyone laughs because it's just it's like so ridiculous. But I also made it because I was like, oh, if I ever have a drag family, like I would want to like also play on that trope. So I'd have like if I had a daughter or a son or whatever, it'd be like Masha wine, Brecca wine tiny wine like especially because my drag is so caribbean centric it just really fit well so you mentioned you were doing uh field work in was that in queer bars or what was that research about initially um when i started my master's um i was doing work specifically in these carnival related party spaces called soca fets um mm-hmm. so if you know anything about carnival in trinidad or other caribbean um countries We have these kind of usually outdoor parties that happen during the summertime in Toronto. They also can happen during the winter, but um, they're mostly associated with Carnival, which in Toronto happens here um, in August with our our Carnival called Carabana. Um, So I was kind of looking at different soca fets and these sort of emerging queer inclusive and queer and trans exclusive soca fets that we are emerging in relation to Carnival, but also happening outside of Carnival. Because the soca fet is very is imagined as a heteronormative space, it often often doesn't make room for queer and trans bodies to feel included or to engage in forms of desire that resist sort of heteronormative practices of desire. So I was looking at specifically at like club spaces, outdoor spaces, pride celebrations where kind of queer soca fets were emerging in Toronto. So again, a lot of these spaces were happening during the summertime. So that research, I mean, are you kind of interviewing people who are at these like parties and in these spaces or like how are you carrying it out yeah so it would originally when i started the masters it was a lot of kind of just observation 
Um, because mm-hmm. again, in effect, like it's very hard to go up to somebody and be like, hey, like, can you tell me about your sexual practices? <laughs> very kind of creepy. Um, that's something that I don't want to do. But again, drag really helped out because I would I would go and drag because they were these were queer inclusive spaces. And originally I would go just to have fun with my with my friends or what we would call like your soca posse, which is like the group of people that you travel with. But again, it turned into like, you know, making friends in the community and really my community activism helped me a lot because I started to make connections with a lot of people who would also like frequent these events. Mm-hmm. Um, and from there, I was able to do more kind of like formal interviews. But, you know, it was I was really looking at at that time gay masculinities and specifically gay Indo-Caribbean masculinities and the ways in which blackness and brownness commingles and interacts with each other in that space. But um, again, so a lot of it is just from like being in the space and dancing with people, getting to know people, people getting to know who I am. And then from there, kind of making connections outside those spaces. Again, I wasn't really just like going up to people being like, hey, can you tell me about what's going on? But it's kind of those like those you know those frequent moments where like you go for a drink in between a song and you like someone starts asking like oh who are you and like what's going on and you strike up a conversation or those those sorts of things so those little little moments i think are like really revealing and are part of the ways in which you know i engage with my community but also do the work that i do yeah are they, are that kind of um i guess are there are there sort of um specific pressures maybe on the Indo-Caribbean queer scene in Canada and the US or like how do these spaces I guess differ from like white dominated queer spaces or or even beyond sexuality as well like um well I I can speak for Toronto mm -hmm. that's what I know the best but yeah so we do have like an area of the city that is supposed to be like our queer hub which is just called the Toronto Gay Village but again for a lot of queer and trans people of color that I've worked with and also that I'm in community with those spaces are not the safest spaces um, and they're not the most inclusive spaces again because like what you were saying these are very kind of white dominated spaces these are all very also very male oriented spaces so even a lot of queer women of color and just queer women in general often tell me that they don't really like the village because it's kind of like a boys club and we're we're seeing that all the time in, in toronto where like queens of color and artists of color and just queer people of color in general are kind of excluded in multiple ways from the village if we have very few spaces that exist and the spaces that do exist are always kind of trying to be defunded or removed i don't know if you know anything about pride toronto but like pride toronto has like a very um harmful history of like doing this to queer and trans people of color like like physically removing these spaces from the village so like what we're actually seeing is like a very harmful politics of like sexual citizenship where like to be queer and trans of color is like to never belong in the village uh-huh. Um, and you know, like, as I'm telling you, like when I, I've been doing drag for three years and I've maybe worked in the village like three times. And again, that's because the type of work that I do is like, I only perform Caribbean popular music most of the time. Like I only perform soca and chutney. And so again, those sounds are oftentimes like not welcomed in the village. And like, I've even heard comments being made by bar owners and like, um, white leaders, like white people who have authoritative positions. Like, we don't want you to play that music. Like we want you to do like Lady Gaga and Beyonce and like top 40 mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. And they will act, I've actually heard them tell people like, can you not, um, do those sorts of sounds because those sound like racialized sound is like not welcome, which, you know, a lot of us are trying to push back and transgress and like resist, and part of doing that resistance is creating our own spaces. But again, in creating our own spaces, like it's harder to get funding. It's harder to you know get these venues. It's hard when a lot of these spaces are also owned by like a lot of white cis gay men. Some of, some of which you know are willing to put in the work, but a lot of which are not. And so 
there's been a lot of work in the last, I would say, like two, three years where I'm seeing a lot more QT BIPOC spaces that are emerging. But again, a lot of them are existing outside of the village. There are some in the village, but again, I would say the majority of them are not, are situated without, like, without relying on the village. And there's a very clear divide between, like, white queer communities in Toronto and, like, QPOC communities in Toronto. And I haven't really seen um, a ton of solidarity between the two. And again, I don't really blame QPOC because we're always thrust out all the time. So I'm very much committed to the events that I produce and the, the people that I work with are always queer trans people of color. And that's just because that's the type of work that I see my drag doing. And I don't want to engage in sort of like mediocre activist work. Like all my work as a drag artist should be to like center my communities, but also the communities that I'm in struggle with and that I'm in solidarity with. Yeah, I've actually, I've kind of noticed this in the UK as well. I think it's almost as if the more in the mainstream, like public eye drag is, the more kind of ossified, the sort of most acceptable versions of it become. And kind of like the more kind of respectable gay establishments open, I see the kind of the margins being pushed further and further out, if you see what I mean. Yeah, it's happening here. Yeah, that kind of leads nicely on. Uh, could you tell me about the Kuluween projects and kind of what gave you the idea? Yeah, just the past year, I've been I've been doing a lot of... So far, most of my drag has been on kind of more performative aspects in terms of like like live performance, which has been great and I really enjoy doing that. But I also wanted to kind of branch out and do different things uh, with drag. Um, and so one of the ideas I had was this Kuluween photography series that I did in collaboration with um, a bunch of queer trans people of color and a collective I produced to put this together. So I was working with drag artists, friends from the community who were queer or, or allies, most of which were queer, and makeup artists, photographers, and um, videographers to put this together. So the idea actually came through because it was approaching Halloween and I wanted to do something with drag. And so I thought about in the Caribbean, there's a lot of folklore regarding kind of like supernatural figures um, and figures, you know, just from our youth that we're, we're told about as children, um, you know, to stay away from or to, to be fearful of or that sort of thing. And um, a lot of these stories were interesting because in doing the work that I do in academia, I was seeing all these sorts of connections between, you know, issues of misogyny and issues of colonialism and post-colonialism and its relationship to these, these folkloric stories. And so I was interested in using these stories and kind of reconfiguring them through drag to talk about issues that are affecting our communities through a queer lens. Um, and so I was really interested in no- using the notions of like horror and the grotesque and the abnormal and as kind of like a metaphor for talking about queer life and queer expression and queer art and specifically the ways in which, again, queer bodies in the Caribbean and in diaspora are always seen as like non-normative and abject and foreign especially with what's going on now in the Caribbean in terms of like a lot of, especially in Trinidad and Guyana and and places like that, where we're seeing the continuities of colonial laws and anti-buggery laws that harm queer and trans bodies, some of which are being struck down, um, but then at the same time, some of which are also being very maintained. And so I was trying to kind of use my diasporic kind of sensibility and my diasporic experience to speak to my understanding of of my Indo-Caribbean queerness, but also to speak to some of the issues that we face in these communities. And so I played on like a bunch of different characters that are very familiar to Caribbean people, 
So um, in this series, like there's one called the Churayal, which is kind of an Indo-Caribbean folklore character, the Sukoyant. There was some of that were of my own creation. So there was one that was like, there isn't really a clown figure in Indo-Caribbean or Afro-Caribbean supernatural folklore, but I kind of played on the clown trope and kind of made it very Caribbean to talk about those sorts of issues. I also played on a kind of like a zombie character, but I, I kind of remixed it with Caribbean representations to play on um, what I called like, I think the doll belly uncle, which is just kind of a trope or caricature that exists in kind of vernacular Caribbean culture to refer to kind of like an uncle figure who like eats a lot of, you know, dal and roti and like he's kind of, he kind of deploys like a toxic masculinity and that sort of thing to talk about the ways in which, you know, like masculinity and, and specifically Caribbean heteromasculinities can be violent towards women as well as queer and trans bodies and other forms and other other peoples and community. But again, I called it Cooley Ween because a lot of the work I do reclaims the word Cooley, which is um, a vocabulary that was used by the British during times of coloniality to refer to Indian indentured laborers in the Caribbean. But again, it was very much based in kind of like degradation, inferiority, low caste um, identities, and all these sorts of things. Again, and very much based in white supremacy and telling the brown body that they were always inferior. But in recent times, and the work that I do in academia really uses and tries to unpack the power and the pleasure and the resistance that is carried in reclaiming this word and reconfiguring what it means to identify with Cooley. Um, and so that's why I called the series Cooley Ween, um, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that's super interesting. And um, you kind of mentioned how women of color can be made sites of terror in these kind of ancestral folklores. And do you see like parallels with that in contemporary society as well? Yeah, absolutely. I was also thinking through like, I've been doing a, a lot of reading on like historical discourses of indenture in the Caribbean and just thinking about... I, I remember it was one book in particular I read called Cooley Women, which is written by a journalist who's based in New York uh, named Gayatra Bahadur. And she actually like traces a lot of the violence specifically Indo-Caribbean women faced at the hands of men and patriarchy in these you know plantation economies during the late 1800s and early 1900s. And I was just seeing the ways in which the violence Indo-Caribbean women face is still very much prevalent in our contemporary society. Like we, every couple months, we'll hear about another coolie girl who is either murdered at the hands of a father or a family member or a community member. And it's something that our community is really... Um, harmed by and is is actively working to push back against but again it does come from again this long colonial genealogy of of women being oppressed in the space of the caribbean by patriarchal powers but it's not something that has ended by any means and so this is a very much colonial continuity that moves from the caribbean to the diaspora but again in doing this type of work i wanted to bring attention to those sorts of things um, and kind of use my privilege as a cis man to kind of speak about these things because, again, oftentimes these these violences are enacted by people that we're seen as in close proximity with, like to family members. There was even a case a couple months ago of, of a Guyanese girl in Canada and Ontario who was murdered at the hands of her father. And this was just another another name that was added to a long list of Indo-Caribbean women who have been abused and harmed and killed um, at the hands of, of patriarchy and men. Yeah, well, I was thinking about um, every year at Trans Day of Remembrance, the list of names is kind of overwhelmingly women of colour. And and they're not, not just abroad, they are in the diaspora, they're at home and they're in the US and it's always very striking to me. Yeah, um, so in your writing, you um, mentioned the work of Edna Brodberg. Mm-hmm. Is she kind of one of your major sort of theoretical influences? And like, you know, how does what you do kind of intersect with what she has to say? 
Yeah, well, she's she's a major uh, feminist Caribbean thinker. Um, and so, like, again, like the work I do is kind of looking at that, even though I, I situate myself in Indo-Caribbean studies, again, we can't talk about the Indo-Caribbean without talking about the Afro-Caribbean because our identities are constructed in relationality to each other, right? And so a lot of the work, I think, of Indo-Caribbean studies, which it has, I think, struggled to do so far in ethnomusicology and other disciplines, is kind of interrogate the anti-Blackness in Indo-Caribbean communities because it's very rampant and it's very real. Um, and I feel like a lot of the older Indo-Caribbean scholars some of which have done that work, but a lot of which have not really interrogated, you know, the ways in which our identities cross paths with each other and intersect and are intertwined and the ways in which we have made space in the Caribbean and in diaspora together. And so, yeah, you know, engaging with scholars like her, I think is really important for us because again, like I say, we we can't really talk about Caribbean brownness without talking about the ways in which it has been constructed in relation to, and oftentimes in opposition to blackness in the Caribbean. And so, yeah, part of my work is also engaging with these sorts of crossings and these interrogations of the interminglings of brown and black life in the Caribbean and in diaspora. I I would say like she's, um, not like a major theoretical thing that I'm working through like throughout the whole project, but she's definitely very influential in the types of kind of methodologies and archives that I'm drawing upon to talk about queer Indo-Caribbean diaspora. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, are there some other kind of writers and thinkers who you would kind of recommend someone who is really interested in this in these legacies? Absolutely. Um, I mean, there's definitely been some work in ethnomusicology that talk about the Indo-Caribbean. Specifically, I'm thinking through um, Peter Manuel and Helen Myers, uh, Tina Ramnarine, who's based in the UK, I believe. So those people have done some good work, but I think in terms of the work that I'm I'm thinking of doing, I'm kind of thinking through a kind of a newer reading of what is ethnomusicology, whereas um, I'm not really going into spaces and talking about, you know, instrumentation and performance in the ways that I would say older discourses of ethnomusicology often talk about performance that is very much based on like you going in and, you know, sitting in with the musicians and those sorts of things and writing down, um, you know, like notating the music and that sort of training that a lot of us have in ethno, right, to work through an ethnomusicology, whereas um, I'm thinking through performance in many different aspects in terms of performance of the everyday, you know, digital performance, performance through song, performance through dance, performance through storytelling, and performance through things that can't necessarily be written down. So like to give you an example, like I'm working through in one chapter right now that I'm hoping to get published that thinks through the ways in which heterosexual heterosexual coded men in Chutney music actually work through kind of feminist genealogies of this festivity called Amatikor, um, which is like a Hindu pre-wedding celebration that comes to the Caribbean via women's practices in indenture. And again, through creating bonds with each other on these indentureships in the like darkest, most scary and dangerous of times, right? In crossing the Indian Ocean to to come to the Caribbean. But again, these I'm not really like going into these spaces and watching them. I'm literally doing this, this work through reading music videos and watching performances and seeing the ways men dance. And uh-huh. some of the scholars that I think are doing this sort of, these newer readings through embodiment and performance and dance are people like Gayatri Gopinath, who writes on like queer South Asian performance, uh, Lyndon Gill, who writes on, he's a, a queer anthropologist in the Caribbean. Again, a lot of the people that I work with here in Toronto um, and that I've studied with, Ronaldo Walcott, Elisa Trotz, who's one of my supervisors, Cassandra Lord, who's one of my supervisors, David Murray. Again, so a lot of the more recent, I would say in the last like 10 to 15 years of work that's being done in queer Caribbean performance by dance hall scholars, particularly too, who I think through Carolyn Cooper, scholars based in the Caribbean, in Indo-Caribbean studies like Gabriel Hussein, 
um, Lisa Uttar, and lots of other and, and scholars that I'm in conversation with who are my colleagues as well. Friends of mine that also work in this field, like Daryl Baksh, um, Nikolai Atai, and a lot of people I'm in proximity with in Toronto and diaspora offer very kind of generative invocations for how to think through performance and queerness and the Caribbean diaspora. Yeah, and I mean, what's really exciting to me about what you're doing is that you're not going into these spaces and looking in, but like you kind of talk about people coming up to you when you're two for one and engaging with you, and it's much more sort of give and take, and that is very interesting. Yeah. I think kind of older ethnomusicology saw a lot of people who were not belonging to the community going into these communities, and kind of the problem with that is kind of unpacking, you know, the politics of difference and positionality and privilege and all those sorts of things. Whereas for me, um, I feel like I'm one of few people doing ethnomusicological work that's actually from the Indo-Caribbean community, besides Tina Ramnarine and other people that are emerging, like who are colleagues of mine now. But I think for a long time, it's been mostly done by white scholars. And again, in, in those sort of white scholarships, again, queerness and, um, and transness and you know, queer identity is not often talked about at all. You know, mm-hmm. I'm even thinking like, again, to the work of Peter Manuel and Helen Myers, like there's very very little that's done not to discount their work but there's very little engagement with those sorts of identities and communities right and again that plays into these narratives that like queerness can't exist in the caribbean or queerness is always foreign to the caribbean when in actuality like we have always been there um and we have always been intrinsic parts of caribbean communities caribbean caribbean nations caribbean um caribbean culture and that sort of thing i'd be really interested to hear more about some of the characters that you've been inhabiting for the Kuliween photo series that you've written about the Sukhoyants and yeah. Yeah, I, part of doing this work was I had to do some research because some of them I had I had grown up hearing about but I wasn't, you know, like I didn't know like the history behind some of them or I really had to do some some like heavy <laughs> heavy creeping and heavy research mm-hmm. to do that. So like the Sukhoyant is again a mythological figure that is kind of, kind of carries this like demonic presence but is kind of imagined as having someone who's like seen at night and she transforms into like a ball of fire. She's also imagined as having human skin and like shedding out of this human skin and then like terrorizing children and humans. She's also been talked about to like prey on the blood of men. So I, I kind of read Big this mood. as all, Yeah. I kind of also <laughs> read this as kind of like a kind of like fighting back, like going back into patriarchy because like it was like why why is this gal going for only men? <laughs> I was just kind of connecting this and I was when I was reading about all of this, I was really interested again in the ways in which women of color, black women and brown women are kind of demonized, you know, as being too aggressive, hyper emotional, hyper excessive outspoken, radical, and again, connecting these things to, like, radical praxis and revolutionary praxis, right? Mm -hmm. Animalistic, untamed, and again, I was kind of also offering this, like, this is all, like, a queer reading, right? Yeah. The black woman, the brown woman, as always one who is too much or excessive or over the top and all these sorts of things. So I kind of was using the Sukhoyant to kind of talk about that, but then also, like, because she's associated with fire, I was like, you know, Caribbean women are, are always kind of rendered um in vernacular in our vernacular as like fiery spicy you know and in terms of like the work that feminist activists in the Caribbean have always done they've, they've always been the ones to be fiery and spicy and like shut shit down and we see this all the time if we look at carnival genealogies or other forms of indentured genealogies with things like chutney music and soaking music where women have been the ones to try and resist and push back and transgress all these norms at the time so like employing the the sucreant was one way of me kind of paying tribute to these like very important feminist genealogies like in the Caribbean. Yeah, uh, you've mentioned your like grassroots activist work a few times. It'd be great to hear more about that as well. Is that the, is the queer trans suburban workshop part of your activism as well? 
So, yeah, so I work with two main groups, um, one in Toronto and one in New York City, that are nonprofit activist groups that do community engagement. So one of them is called the Caribbean Equality Project, which is based in Queens, New York City. Um, and I came into contact with them while I was doing my master's degree, because as I was doing my master's degree and doing all this work on queer soca vets, I was noticing that a lot of the activist pursuits in Toronto were very racially segregated. And so what we were seeing, um, what I was seeing was that there were a lot of like termed South Asian groups that were happening, uh, groups like ASAP, which is the Alliance for South Asian AIDS Prevention in Toronto, which was actually started by a queer Indo-Trinidadian man, um, but has been really in the last, I would say, last couple of years, struggling to include Indo-Caribbean people as, as part of that. And again, that plays into the politics of brownness here in that a lot of us don't identify as South Asian because we also carry tensions with mainland South Asians who kind of see us as like not real brown people because we're like the people who descend from those who left and like never went back. And for a lot of us, well, some of which, some of which never went back. But for a lot of us, like we don't speak Hindi. Our kind of our culture is drastically different, even though it it carries a genealogy to India. Um, our our culture emerges, the Indo-Caribbean identity emerges out of our departure from India. And so a lot of us don't feel Maybe we might feel connected to India in some ways, but we don't actually feel included by Indian cultures or by the Indian nation state or by Indian communities a lot of the time. And so um, what I was seeing in Toronto was like there was a lot of South Asian groups that were predicated on this notion of like collective South Asianness. But again, for a lot of Indo-Caribbeans, we don't fit into that. And then on the other end, there's a lot of really important organizations that are... Afrocentric that are doing really important work for black communities. But then again, obviously, Indo-Caribbean communities are not part of that work, and that's totally fine. But again, what we were seeing was, in terms of talking about the Caribbean um, and the specificity of Caribbean lives, there wasn't any group in Toronto that was like Caribbean-centric. Even though these communities do offer programming and services to um, Indo-Caribbean and Afro-Caribbean people, there was like no one space. Um, that was like dedicated for like the multiplicities of Caribbean people. And so I was, I reached out to the Caribbean Equality Project because they were a group that I came into contact with that was actually dedicated to bridging this divide and this tension between Afro-Caribbean and Indo-Caribbean communities. And so I started working with them. Right now I'm a, I'm a board member with them. Um, we organized a huge conference in 2018 in Toronto that was about bridging solidarities between queer and trans Indo and Afro-Caribbean communities in Toronto, which was uh, really exciting. Um, right now we're in the process of organizing our next and this is also a community conference by the way this is not an academic conference that's happening in miami um, in november of 2020 which will be exciting um, which we are kind of extending beyond the anglophone diaspora community of caribbean communities to include again to a centrality of the spanish-speaking queer um, caribbean diaspora communities which will be exciting so i work with them a lot um, a lot of my work in my dissertation also thinks through the work that they do in new york city and the communities that they serve and the people that are affiliated with them and I also do some work with a community um, organization in Toronto called Caribbean Toronto, which just started a couple months ago, where we just kind of have like get togethers, we build space for each other, we have kind of social gatherings for queer Caribbean peoples. But again, again, part of the outside of these two main groups, I also do, you know, I work with some different community organizations, both as an academic, as a speaker, but also like in drag in the suburbs as well. So in areas of the suburbs of Toronto, um, two of which are Mississauga and Brampton. This year, I'm a vice chair of a, a lecture series called The Sex Salon, which is held at the University of Toronto, where we just have talks, community gatherings, public events surrounding sexual diversity. And so I organized um, an event called like Queering Suburbia, where a friend of mine who's a fantastic community organizer 
uh, down there in the suburbs named Anu, started to talk about, you know, what does it mean to be queer in the suburbs? How do we bridge activist efforts between the urban and the suburban? How do we kind of build community among those two? Because I'm not sure how it is in the UK, but for Toronto, a lot of programming or for a long time, if you were a queer or trans person and you were seeking resources and you were living in the suburbs, you actually had to travel to Toronto to find community, to find spaces, to find people to help you. But I would say in the last kind of five or six years or over 10 years, people like Anu and other people have been doing really, really amazing work in terms of like building space for queer community um, and access to queer programming and services in the suburbs. So, and again, I'm from the suburbs, like I was born in Mississauga. I only recently moved to Toronto to live over like maybe three years ago just for for school. But um, I grew up like in that area. And so that work is also really, really important to me. Yeah. I mean, so um, so it, your PhD work and your drag work, what conversations are you generating like within and outside the academy? And like, where do you see yourself in the future? So the questions I'm thinking through right now is uh, my project, again, as I've said, is, is looking through music, sound, dance, and queer Indo-Caribbean diaspora. So I look at the ways in which queer Indo-Caribbean people are using performance and specifically music and dance to create space for themselves, to push back against dominant ideologies that don't always make space for them, that speak to kind of transgressal and radical ways to be Indo-Caribbean that are not situated in, you know, heteronormativity or sorts of other dominant kind of essentializing discourses of of identity. But I'm, again, I'm, so I look at things like, I look at club spaces, I look at pride celebrations, I look at drag culture and drag performance and how different drag artists who are Indo-Caribbean are playing with things like embodiment and style and music and sound and dance to kind of create radical political performances of self. I also look at Indo-Afro intimacies. So again, we have to talk about these crossings that emerge. I mean, what does it, it mean to be an Indo-Caribbean in diaspora, to make community with Afro-Caribbean queer populations, but also other types of Indo-Caribbean populations? So like I'm also thinking about in a space like Toronto or New York City, where Trinidadians and Guyanese people have come together and made space for each other since the 1960s. What does it mean to think through Indo-Caribbean-ness through all these multiplicities and through all of this stuff? And so... All the work that I do in unpacking, you know, Indo-Caribbean-ness and queer Indo-Caribbean-ness is is to do the work for my community. Um, Because, again, this has been the community that has also raised me and also given me so much. I'm I'm only doing this work to cultivate forms of knowing and knowledge production and resources, not to speak on behalf of my community, but to work for my community, right? And so I think that's really important. So, you know, I'm not really sure... I mean, the, even though there's many harmful parts of academia, I do enjoy especially teaching and working with people and learning from students and co-sharing space together and engaging in organizing together and doing that sorts of thing. So in that capacity, I'm, I am interested in hopefully continuing to do that work, whether it be in the in the academy, outside the academy or both. And also just continuing to perform and doing the work that I do as like as a you know as an activist scholar and yeah hopefully hopefully that all works out. But again, that's, <laughs> that's kind of where I'm headed or what I'm thinking of where I'm headed. Who are the other queens performing uh, soca and chutney music in Toronto? Um, there's to be honest, not very many. Um, soca, yes. Um, so there are a lot of Afro-Caribbean queens that do really, um, really important work that work in the village. But I wouldn't say they do soca all the time, but they do. Like I've seen them do soca quite a bit, and like that's really cool. So one of them is named Jada Hudson, who I believe is Bayesian from Barbados. Lady G, um, Vitality Black, Tainomi Banks, Divine Darling. We also have um, a queen named Priyanka 
who is Guyanese, um, and I've seen her do soca a couple times. I haven't seen anyone do chutney besides me, um, which is like an Indo-Caribbean musical, popular musical genre. So I, I'm, I would be interested to see, I mean, what happens in the future if there are, you know, more emerging Indo-Caribbean queens that would be invested in that type of work. Um, but so far, I'm the only one that I know of in Toronto <laughs> that does chutney. But I know there are also other queens outside of Canada that do this work. So in New York City, there's um, a, an Indo-Caribbean queen named Sundari, the Indian goddess, who does a lot of chutney. Other queens that I know of, there's a queen in Florida who have just recently come in contact with named Karma Sutra. I don't know if she does chutney, though. Um, but I but I know she's Trinidadian. She does, I think, believe she does soca. There's an uh, detox bustier in in New York City, who is Jamaican, so it does a lot of dance hall. Yeah, so there's people out there doing work, especially in terms of soca and dance hall. In terms of chutney, not so much, but definitely in terms of soca. The performances that I, I engage with are mostly like women's performances of soca. There's an artist named Patrice Roberts, who's very good. Destra Garcia, um, Trinidadian. Alison Hines. In terms of chutney, again, lots of different people. Hema Dindyal, Dripati Ramganai, who's kind of like the foremother of like women's chutney performance who was kind of doing this kind of transgressive radical work from the beginning awesome so yeah right amazing radio thank you so much no problem thanks for doing this this is really cool That was Ryan Persady on being a scholar, activist and artist in the queer spaces of Toronto's Indo-Caribbean diaspora. For more of Ryan's work, check out the Caribbean Equality Project and his recent article in Music Culture's Journal, Drake, Cultural Appropriation and Embodied Caribbeanization. Ryan is on Twitter and you can follow Tifa Wine on Instagram at tifa.wine. The live recordings in this clip were from her performance with the Geetika Dance Company at the Stand with Wet Sowerton fundraiser back in March. Thanks again for bearing with us in the break between releases. We've got loads of exciting new content coming out soon. Look for us at this year's online RMA conference, which is being hosted by Goldsmiths. I'll be giving a short paper about how we put the show together and opening a dialogue about how it's curated. We're also putting together an anniversary special on queer mutual support. We're looking for volunteers to give very short interviews about their experiences in the music industry, the academy, and so on. If you are LGBTQ+, and you do music, we want to hear from you. Email lgbtqmusicsg at gmail.com or visit www.lgbtqmusicstudygroup.com to find more ways to contact us. Bent Notes is produced by the LGBTQ Plus Music Study Group. We're supported by the Royal Musical Association, the Society for Musical Analysis, the British Forum for Ethnomusicology, and the Society for Musicology in Ireland. Wear a mask. Thanks for listening. <laughs>